Cast. Hello everyone, your host Earl Brian here. Look, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this upcoming episode because it, it really stands on its own and, and speaks for itself. You know, it's not every day you get a chance to interview a uh, U.S. ambassador, much less one like Scott Gratian with all of his experience pretty much spending a good chunk of his life in Africa, um, the rest of his life spent in dedication to serving the U.S., both in the Air Force and as an ambassador. And he shares some really, really great stories through this podcast. I think you're going to love it. Uh, I did want to take a quick second, though, to update you on the status of the commercials I talked about in the opening of the season uh, to promote veteran-run businesses. I'm still working with a couple uh, to just get the final details ironed out. Even though these are for free, we still want to make sure that uh, they are doing the job, promoting these businesses and uh, helping them support their missions. And on that note, don't forget that there is the the support button on my page on Anchor for this show. If you're listening to this, chances are pretty good. You click that link to listen to it. There's a support button. Click that. Uh, you might have to set up an account and go through a few steps to be able to support the show. But if you like what we're doing, if you believe in our mission, uh, please do. Uh, as I said in that episode, a portion of that, uh, a minimum of 50%, will go towards some of these veteran groups uh, as well. So uh, not only can you support the show by listening to the commercials and going and buying the the clothing and and different uh, pieces of merchandise that these businesses sell, but you can support it by donating to this podcast and we'll turn that money around and put it to work. All right, that really covers what I've got to update you this week. Without further ado, here is Ambassador Scott Gratian. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today, I've got a really, really great guest, uh, Ambassador Jonathan Scott Gratian, uh, retired Major General from the United States Air Force. Uh, Scott Gratian has had a very interesting career. Uh, he has been on many diplomatic assignments, including U.S. Ambassador to Kenya, U.S. Special Envoy to Sudan, and a special assistant to president in the White House. Uh, As I mentioned, he retired as a major general from the United States Air Force after 32 years as a fighter pilot and uh, senior leader. Uh, He's also the author of the book Flight Path, Son of Africa to Warrior Diplomat. Uh, Ambassador Gratian, thank you for joining us today on this podcast. Well, it's great to be with you. It's always nice to talk to people that have, have a shared experience uh, in the military. So I look forward to this. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I wish mine was anywhere near as, as amazing as yours was. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I can't wait to, to read the book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But just uh, what little bit I've got to know of you from uh, our, our good friend Jim Bouchard's podcast that you did. And I'll have a link for that on the listeners here because I'd like to help Jim out. Uh, but it, it's been an amazing career. Uh, but before we dive into that, I'd love to uh, start you out where I start all my first-time guests. The phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? You know, I've heard that word before. And uh, I never really did understand 
why people consider command a burden. You know, I looked at command, and I've had several opportunities to be a commander, as an opportunity, an opportunity that comes with responsibility, it comes with authority, it comes with all those kinds of things we associate with leadership, but it comes with a lot of other good things. Number one, you get to put your print on your organization, you get to take care of people, you get to inspire them, you get to achieve a mission. This is exciting stuff, stuff that I, for years, got up in the morning excited to go to work, excited about having the opportunity to command. And even when I was a younger officer, I aspired to be a commander. I looked at other people who were in leadership positions and took a look at the things I didn't appreciate, the things that did not motivate me, and looked at those who inspired me and those who empowered me and those who made me want to join the team and do my best. And, and so I worked on cultivating leadership skills even as a, well, even before I got in the military, but then certainly in the military I did. And so for me, it's not a burden of leadership. It's not a burden of command. It's an opportunity and I look forward to it every day. And I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to serve our country in positions of command. And it's really about building the team. It's really about getting the job done. And it's really about protecting our, our country and our resources and our people. And that's a privilege. So I would say it's not a burden of command, but a privilege of leadership. Mm, I like that perspective. And, and again, thank you very much for, for your service, both in the military uh, and as, as a foreign dignitary for the United States. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. So, uh, so let's, let's, talk in, uh, let's talk about your book a little bit here, Flight Path, Son of Africa to Warrior Diplomat. So my listeners, having heard what they've heard about you so far, that, that first part, Son of Africa, may be throwing folks off. What's, what's that about? Yeah, the book is really divided into three parts. The first has to do with my background, my childhood in Africa. And then, of course, uh, the last two sections have to, be, have to do with being a warrior, being in the military, and then serving our country as a diplomat, both as the special envoy to Sudan and then the U.S. ambassador to Kenya. But the first part sort of unique. You hit on it. Not a lot of people have the experiences that I had growing up. I went to Africa when I was 18 months old, and my parents were missionary teachers in Congo, and uh, we were there in a turbulent time. A lot of countries in Africa were achieving their independence, and Congo, like them, got its independence on June 30th of 1960. But along with independence came turbulence. Uh, the first president, Patrice Lumumba, was assassinated. The army mutinied. There was a rebel movement that swept through the country. And we were told on three occasions to leave. The first two, we were able to go back after a short period of time, after things stabilized. But on the last time, uh, we were escorted out with UN soldiers. And after going through a lot of trouble, we finally were able to leave with just the clothes on our backs and our cars. We went to Kampala initially and then on to Kenya but that was a great experience for me, not so much that we lost everything we owned, and it was very difficult for my parents to lose wedding pictures and things like that. But for me, it was a seminal experience in that I learned that really 
people could take everything I owned, and I learned that possessions were not as important as relationships and what I had in my heart and what I had in my mind. And so it sort of focused me on the important things of life at a relatively young age. Most people at the age of 13 uh, don't have that privilege. And yes, I was a refugee. I was living in other people's clothes. I was eating other people's food and sleeping in other people's houses until we got our feet back on the ground and, and my folks were able to start a new life. But it was a time that was a very important in my makeup. And uh, that's one of the things I tell about in the book. I was also not a very good student. I didn't like going to school. And uh, so I branched out and did other things. I became a carpenter and electrician. I had a butcher shop. I was the youngest person in Kenya to have a hunting license. And I would go down and, and, and get meat that I was able to give away to other people. Uh, just learning about electricity and, and getting a license to to install electric lights and whatever was an important thing that stayed with me uh, through these years. I also was a school barber, and that was not only good for me helping to keep my kids' hair in line, but uh, I also cut hair at Lorton Community Center for homeless people, and I've been cutting hair ever since. Uh, so there was a lot of things that happened to me in my youth that formed who I am today but the biggest thing is I learned another culture. I learned about other people. I learned about other values. And I learned what really is important in life. And uh, those are the things I tried to take with me into my leadership positions. Well, I bet those were a lot of valuable lessons. I mean, like you said, you, you lost pretty much everything. And, and that had to, you know, you, you, you went from one country that had very little to you having nothing to another country that maybe had a little bit more, but still not a whole lot to give, but they still found a way to give you something, right? Yeah, it was really meaningful for me. And it left a big impression on me such that when Uganda started having trouble in 1979, Idi Amin had taken over power. And under his reign, 600,000 people were killed. Mm. And churches were burned down with people worshiping them, and and people were imprisoned. Some were taken out and killed. Uh, there was no running water. Uh, electricity was very intermittent, and the people were really suffering a lot. And when I heard that Idi Amin was beginning to leave, I ended up going back to Uganda. It turned out that I was one of only a few people in the country, uh, white guys, especially 13 of us in the Kampala area. And again, I learned some important lessons. Yes, it was hard, and yes, there was shooting all around and people screaming and dogs barking, and I had a hard time sleeping. But, you know, I never heard anybody complain. I heard people being thankful for what they had, even if it was just life itself. People subsisted on what they call the matoke banana. It's a very starchy banana, and that's all we had to eat, and occasionally some groundnuts. But... But I never heard people complain. And it was just a tribute to the people and a lesson to me who complain about so much. And, and while we didn't have water, uh, they conserved and made do and shared with me a half a glass of water a day. And then I came back to Phoenix where I was living. And well, I tell you, they were watering the sides of the parkway and, and people were turning on the water to brush their teeth and just letting it go down the tubes. And, 
and I really was shaken up after I realized how much water as Americans we let go down the drain and, and run off when there's people around the world that don't have potable water. And eventually I ended up joining a company to help bring potable water to the people that don't have it. About 2 billion people don't have potable water uh, near them. And uh, in Kenya, we used to lose a child under five every four minutes. And one of the major reasons was intestinal problems that were caused by having bad water. So water is such an easy thing. I learned that in Uganda. Uh, it's an easy thing to take for granted. It's a hard thing to get when you don't have it. But that lesson, along with a lesson of gratitude, but I think the most important message that I learned in Uganda was that of forgiveness. On Sundays, I would go to the top of the hill and listen to the people talk about forgiving. Almost every family had lost somebody. Almost every family had suffered immensely uh, under Idi Amin's regime. And yet I talked to, I heard him talking about forgiving and, and moving forward and looking at the future. I couldn't believe it. And I didn't understand how people could forgive when there's really no reason to forgive and every reason to be bitter. And eventually I would learn that lesson the hard way myself, but it started in Uganda. So Uganda was a great trip for me and I learned so much. And between evacuation from Congo, my time in Uganda, my time in Kenya, it was really a blessing to be a son of Africa because it really shaped me in very positive ways that I'm indeed grateful for even to this day. Well, I mean, you, you hit on something there that it was just, it's amazing because I, I have a, and I, I call him a friend uh, now, uh, Francis is his name, and he's a Nigerian immigrant. And whenever I go to D.C. for, for events, uh, he, he drives uh, he says I was the original Uber. He drives a professional uh, car. He's driven. He got pictures of him with all sorts of uh, uh, all sorts of politicians. And uh, but but what you just said there, like you summed up Francis uh, completely. Like he is just so happy, so grateful. Loves uh, he loves America. I mean, he loves Nigeria, but he also loves America for the opportunities. And, and it was eye-opening hearing him talk about his experiences growing up. And, and, and he was telling me, you know, he's like, I, I don't understand why people aren't more grateful for America. Mm. And, and, and hearing somebody, you know, he moved to America the year I was born. And, with, and he said with a, with a sack. Uh, and, and he showed me. He still got the sack from uh, 1979. And he's like, this is all I had. I, I use it to carry my personal items today, but when I got here, this is all I had, and now look what I've got. And, and he just, he loves his car. But he, he, I guess the point is, it, there's just something about growing up in, in that type of environment that, uh, you know, I think most Americans take for granted what, what suffering can teach you. And it can teach you a lot, right? I agree with you. And, and I hate to, to almost bring this up, but, you know, the possessions are one thing. And we take for granted uh, the roads we drive on, the fact that we can flip a switch and the lights will be there. And, and we take for granted so much physical stuff. But I got to tell you, I worry about Americans taking for granted 
our flag. Mm. I worry about them taking for granted Memorial Day and Veterans Day and the sacrifice and service of so many that came before and so many that are serving now and spouses and children of people that are serving now and sacrifices that that families have to make when their family members deploy. And, and I think we're almost taking that for granted. We've been in combat for so long. I mean, even right after 9-11 until today, we still have people deploying around the world and the war on terrorism. And, and it's sort of become business as usual, but it's mm -hmm. not. These are Americans that are given a very special portion of their most productive years to serve our country and to uphold our values and to make sure that our flag and our way of life and our values are protected. This is so important. And, and yes, it's nice to have those things that come with being Americans and living in America, but boy, we can't forget those things that our country was founded on and the importance of freedom. Freedom's not free. And, and uh, I've seen it firsthand. I was in Cobar Towers when terrorists blew up our tower where we were sleeping. And that night I lost 19 people that worked for me. Mm. You know, none of those 19 people went to bed that night thinking that they were going to get up, uh, not get up the next day. And it was a hard situation to, to live through that and realize that Americans continue to sacrifice and they sacrifice today. And, and we still have people that are dying for our country and for our freedom. And we can never, never, never take that for granted. Well, no, and I, I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, I mean, it's, that's the thing is, you know, yes, this country has a lot of warts. It's had a lot of uh, faults throughout its history, but you know, people around the globe, love that flag because of what it represents and the opportunities and and some of the people we've talked about like you know again my friend Francis he he loves the American flag because it was what gave him the opportunity and and I think you're onto something there because it's you know it's it's almost like we we've reached a point where um foreigners and I'm using the air quotes here with foreigners but it's almost like they appreciate the flag and all it stands for more than uh, than some of our citizens, and and I attribute that some of that to the fact that there hasn't been that suffering for freedom in such a long time for most groups in the country. Uh, yeah. So that, that that's a very interesting point to to bring up. So uh, just as a piece that that connects to this. And that's the value and the specialness of our military. I've worked with a lot of different militaries. And I tell you, I, I didn't even plan on staying in the military for 32 years. But I wouldn't trade a minute of it. Not only because I got to serve our flag and protect our flag, but because of the people I served with. We have an amazing group of people that have come together and picked up the banner of those that have come before and continue to press ahead and, and carrying on the legacy of service and the legacy of dedicated excellence and the legacy of sacrifice. I mean, it's amazing for me to think of the people that I served with. I, you know, they, they lived out the core values. In the Air Force, we have the core value of integrity first, another one of 
service before self and excellence in all we do. And I saw this every day. You didn't have to de- ask people and wonder if they were going to do what they said. You didn't have to worry about that maybe when no one's looking, they were going to do something else or they were going to take a shortcut for pleasure or for gain. You just knew that they would be there and you could count on them. And, and that was so special for me to be associated with men and women of that caliber. Men and women that every day got up in the morning and looked in the mirror and strove to do their best that day. And men and women that would put their country and others above themselves. I can remember back, I talked a little bit about Kobar Towers, but after the bombing took place, we had a lot of people that were hurt with flying glass and shrapnel. And, and one of my jobs was to set up a temporary triage center. And I can still remember going there about three hours after the bombing. And, and I looked over and there was a PJ, a pararescue man, putting stitches in another soldier while somebody held a compress on his forehead. Mm-hmm. He refused to get stitches himself until everybody had been sewn up. That's what we see every day in the military. And, and to be associated with men and women of that caliber men and women of that dedication and that commitment is unbelievable. And uh, it motivated me to stay in for a really long time. And I got to tell you, I'm so proud to be associated with every one of them. And, and even today that I retired, I get an opportunity to go back to basis. And it just gives me so much pleasure to just sit in a, a PX or BX and watch the men and women come through. So young, so bright, and they're the future of our country, and I'm so very proud to be associated with every one of them. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, the thing is, is and, and they come from all walks of life. They're not all, uh, you know, American-born citizens. You know, uh, in, in, in my... Uh, in my platoon at boot camp, I had a, a young kid who was on a program uh, from India uh, and a, a young man who was in program from Saudi Arabia uh, to, to join the Marine Corps and have a path to uh, path to citizenship. And they had the same level of dedication, and, and I loved it. And, and, you know, the one thing you just said there, and, and I hope, you know, listeners here are, are hearing is it, it's that – to me, the thing that makes military leadership so special is that level of care, concern, and compassion that we have for one another in those times. And that's something that I think every organization would love to have a group of individuals that, I mean, we say it all the time, we love one another. You know, people think of military leadership as the command and control, barking orders, and but when you sit down and, and you have two airmen, soldiers, marines, sailors, the word that they use every single time is love. And, and, and yeah. man, what organization wouldn't want to have people that would go to that length? I mean, you just told the story about refusing to, to get stitches until everybody else is taken care of. You know, most organizations, they're the first one running the first aid kit, right? You know, you, you started out with that question about burden of command. And when you have this resource that you talked about, 
men and women who, who have joined the service, it is incumbent upon every leader not to squander this such precious resource, not to waste the blood and treasure that's associated with them, but to lead them in a way that inspires them, empowers them, and motivates them to achieve uh, greater heights. And, and to be associated with these men and women and then have the opportunity to be a leader within the organization of the military was a great privilege. And, and I tell you what, it, it, when you see these men and women, it just makes you work all the harder. And it makes you want to recognize them and to say thank you. It makes them want to be, you to be a cheerleader, to, to spurn them on and to give them the training and the resources they need to be all that they can be. And they love it. <laughs> when you give one of these folks a new task, you give them the resources and the training, it is just unbelievable to watch them take off because our military has such tremendous initiative in its ranks and, and with proper leadership, it can do amazing things. Unfortunately, oh, without proper leadership, in an environment where it's stifling, where people are just commanded and people are not inspired and they're not led well, it's terrible and it's a travesty and, and we've got to get more people that understand what leadership is about and people like you to go out and train leaders because leadership, yes, you're born with it, but you can always get better. And so I believe in training uh, leaders. I believe in helping them get those skills that they need to be more effective in the way they empower, inspire, and lead the people under them. Yeah, that's uh, powerful. Um, as you were talking, it just reminds me of, of a story I love to share when I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I lived there for a little over three years. And um, I'd only been there a couple of weeks. I pull into this gas station. I don't even remember what brand the gas station was now. But it was probably about 11, 11.30 at night, and there's a gentleman out there. He's he's painting the little, uh, the little island that the gas uh, pump sets on. And uh, just struck up conversation with him. And, uh, you know, through the conversation, you know, it's like it's kind of a weird time to be painting, right? And he goes, well, you know, I like to keep my gas station looking good. And then this happens to be my shift. So this is the time I get to take to, to make, my, uh, make my gas station look as great as it can be. Like, oh, well, I had no idea you were the owner. Uh, you know, working the midnight shift, that's, that's pretty cool. He goes, oh, I don't own the place. I go, what are you talking about? You just said my gas station. Goes, no, I'm, I, I'm, I work here, but I, this is my gas station. I want my customers to have the best experience possible. And I'm sitting here like, here's a gas station attendant making minimum wage, I'm sure. But the level of care and concern that he was putting into that gas station, I mean, he instantly won me over as a customer. Every time I had to get gas uh, that late at night, that's exactly where I went. But it's like, you know, how do organizations get their people to feel that way about where they work? Yeah, it's a great question. I found that I needed to listen to the people uh -huh. that I worked with. I had two programs that were very instrumental in helping me when I was a commander of two bases. Uh, the first was 
Breakfast with the Boss. And I would spend a lot of mornings, uh, I know we're not allowed to call them chow halls, but uh, in the dining facilities, uh, with groups of people, just listening to what their concerns were. Some I could fix, some were institutionals that I couldn't fix. But, but to listen to them was so important for me to get their perspective. The second thing I did is I started a program called the Wing Commander Mentorship Program. And in that program, I brought uh, a senior airman up to my office, gave them an office, and they went to every single meeting that I went to so that I could get an enlisted perspective on every decision. When I went to fly an F-16 in combat, I, they would ride in the tanker and be there on the other side when I got gas. When uh, DVs or distinguished visitors would come, they would be in the car with me and a four-star general. Uh, they went to every single meeting, and it was so important for me to get that enlisted perspective and to be able to listen to the people who were doing the work, the people that I was there to cheer on. And and a lot of it is, yeah, you say, well, that's you probably <laughs> didn't really listen to it, but I did, and it made a total difference in the way that I carried out. And maybe I didn't get every good idea from them, but I got an attitude, an attitude of making sure that everybody on the basis that I commanded had a voice to me and I was listening to their concerns and that I was doing my best mm -hmm. to make a difference. Uh, for instance, when I got up to Elmendorf Air Force Base, I found out that almost every officer had a garage door opener in their, in their house. But there was some 600 enlisted people that had on-base housing, but they had to get out of their car and lift their garage door up in the cold Alaska weather. Mm. So we got together and did a self-help program. We bought all these garage door openers. We put teams together that went through on, and put in the electricity and put in the, the, the tracks and, and fixed that. And pretty soon, everybody through a self-help program had a garage door opener. Yeah, it was a small thing, but it made a big difference. It made it sent the message that everybody was important, and we cared about everybody, no matter their rank. And we were able to do other programs like that to send that message. Yeah, it's not just about garage door openers, but it's about the message that it sends. It's about the inspiration that it, that comes with that kind of action. And that's the kinds of things I gained by listening to people who I normally, in the course of my activities, probably wouldn't have an opportunity to listen to. Uh, they didn't come to staff meetings normally. It's not the kind of things I would normally see. But by making an effort to get out and listen to everybody, some people call it management by walking around. Uh, it's a good thing to get out of your office and listen to the people that you're leading in order to be a good leader. I 100% agree, and I can tell you from personal experience there, because uh, you know, my I started my federal civilian service career in Bethel, Alaska, and yeah, my listeners today, first of all, I'm sure a lot of them are like, there was a time when you didn't have garage door openers, uh, but the others, 
I mean, if you haven't had to do something like that when it was 40 below outside, <laughs> that, that garage door opener is like the best friend you've ever had at that point That's in time. Right. <laughs> so I agree with you. So, but you know, and you, you said it right there, it's, it's those small things. And I think that's uh, in some of my experiences with leaders is they, they feel that it has to be some grand Herculean heroic type gesture, but it really doesn't. Right. I mean, just those no. small things. And, and the thing is, I, I spent a lot of time while I was walking around trying to catch people doing a good thing. Mm. And so that I could either say thank you or, or recognize them. I had team awards that I would give out uh, in my staff meetings of people that I would catch doing good things. Things that we often take for granted, but things that contributed to the wing. And uh, I, I was telling Jim, I wrote thank you notes prolifically while I was on active duty and Chris and uh, cards, birthday cards. I, I wanted everybody on the base to get at least one piece of correspondence from me, a, a birthday card and preferably if I could two uh, pieces of correspondence where I could congratulate them on something, whether it was their child getting an award in elementary school, I would have, I'd be going through the, the newspapers looking for clippings. Uh, I, I worked very hard on being able to recognize people for achievements, some not stellar, but but all of them uh, where people did something of significance to help our wing. And when you start looking for people doing good, it's amazing how much you see. Because if you're not looking for people and trying to catch people doing good things, you miss a lot of stuff. And and just to be able to catch somebody, you know, in the commissary, picking up, you know, macaroni that's spilled on the floor or, or whatever, and just going in and say, thank you so very much for doing that. Right. And, you know, it's just, it's so important to have that attitude of being grateful. And, and a good leader has to do that. Well, and, and so uh, two things there, you know, one, just to kind of put in perspective, because, uh, you know, probably got people here who are leading teams as small as, you know, maybe two, three, four, five, and, uh, you know, maybe as much as a few hundred. How many, uh, how many airmen and other personnel did you have under your command as, as a wing commander at that time? At Elmendorf, uh, there were uh, it's it's two different questions uh, because we had the wing itself, but then we had we were uh, the organization that took care of all the tenants. So there was about twenty five thousand people that were in our catchment area, and uh, ones that we were directly and indirectly responsible for, and uh, you know because we would have to keep the lights on and the water running and the streets cleaned and that kind of thing. Not all of them worked directly for me, but they were all in our catchment area. Yeah, so there was a lot of people and a lot of birthday cards. Right. The fact is, I got really good at my signature, and I got really good at writing their names. <laughs> right. And I would yeah. take a stack home every night. It was just something that I would do uh, after dinner is just uh, write birthday cards. And it was an honor and a privilege to do that. And I was telling Jim that when I went to combat, uh, we were in an undisclosed location, and, and I spent a lot of time writing notes back to parents 
to spouses, to children. I tried to find out when, when the children of the people that work for me had their birthdays so that I could congratulate them and tell them what a great job their mother or father was doing. And, and it's so important to remember the humanness that's associated with leaders. We're not leading machines. We're leading people who make machines do what we need them to do. And, and you, if you're not touching people in a way that connects, people have a hard time doing the job and fulfilling the vision of your organization. So number one, you've got to have that vision. It's got to be clear. It's got to be short. It's got to be something that everybody can, can latch onto and buy into. And then you have to have that mission statement that says, okay, this is where we are right now. These are the things we need to do to get to, to fulfill that vision statement. And then you really got to tease out those mission essential tasks, those three, four, five, six things that have to be done in order to achieve the mission. And when you get all those things, then it's easy to set up your organization, to train your people, to resource them properly. And if folks are doing things that don't support the mission, the mission essential tasks, then they shouldn't be doing it because you're wasting your time, you're not streamlined, and you're, and you're getting confused in terms of, of the efficiency and effectiveness of your organization. So leaders get out in front. They understand the big picture. They understand where the organization is going. They lay out that vision and the mission, and then they get out of the way and just make sure people are inspired, empowered, and resourced and trained. So I, I, I like that last part there because it reminded me of a, uh, a quote from uh, General uh, Hal Moore. Most people probably know him from the Mel Gibson movie, We Were Soldiers, uh, back when he was a lieutenant colonel. But he used to say one of the things that he would do every day was he would end the day by asking himself two questions. What did I do today that I shouldn't? And what didn't I do today that I should? And try to, to make that a better answer tomorrow and, and avoid the things. Uh, but you, you said something there that I think is just solid gold because, again, working with leaders, I'm always amazed at how many, how many leaders believe uh, that, that their, their workers exist in kind of a bubble that only what happens at work affects what happens at work. But it carries over to home as well. And, and what I liked about you reaching out to families, and, and this is the thing that I have – you know, I try to get leaders to understand, especially if they are in a business that they have people that requires a lot of travel or being away from home, not unlike the military. Uh, you know, if you don't take that extra time and it's like, hey, I need you to go to New York or I need you to go to Chicago or whatever, you know, sometimes the family gets met with that animosity and, and it makes the worker's job more difficult. But if you take the time to include the family and make them feel like they're part of it and they're appreciated, then you kind of flip that script a little bit. And they're like, hey, you work for a great person. They take care of us. Go to Chicago and do the best job you can. Get home as soon as you can. And you can change that entire work environment just by being mindful that your, your people exist outside of your four walls. And you have to make sure they understand why what they're doing is critical to the mission. They have to be able to connect the dots from them and going to Chicago and accomplishing the mission and achieving the vision. 
And, and so many times I see people that do things just because they've done it like that before or just because they were told that that's what they have to do. And everybody in the organization has to see a clear relationship between what they're doing and company success or achieving the mission and accomplishing the dream. If they don't see that, it's very hard to inspire them. It's very hard to motivate them. And no matter what kind of training and resources you give them, you're probably not going to be effective. And so uh, all this organizational theory and things that we've talked about is not just words. This is real. This is what leaders have to understand. And leaders have to breathe and make sure that they do every day. And then I like that thing. You got to ask yourselves, was I able to connect the dots for every one of my people? What can I do better next time? And it's so critical. You, you hit on it. And we got to ask those hard questions. And we've got to make sure the people that work for us are connected in the same the way that we are. No, that's, uh, yeah, that's outstanding. So uh, kind of shifting gears here a little bit. Um, so you, you worked uh, with your, uh, your post-military career. Uh, you worked with two presidents, right? Presidents Carter and Reagan? Yeah, I was a White House fellow with President Reagan. And so uh, I actually worked at NASA on the space shuttle. The space shuttle was just getting going when I was a special assistant to the administrator of NASA. And so I was able to be there uh, from the second space shuttle launch up to the 13th space shuttle launch. And, and it was just so exciting to see us go into space, to see us think about the space station, to think about how we transitioned from the Apollo program and the moon landings into a more permanent presence in space. And, and for me, it was unbelievable. I'm a, an engineer by trade and to be able to work on the solid rocket boosters, the filament wound solid rocket boosters that we wanted to use out of the West Coast to go into polar orbit. Uh, that was so exciting. And, and to work with the engineers and the people at NASA and then to go down to uh, Cape Canaveral and, and over to Houston and talk to the astronauts and the people that were actually doing the missions. Uh, boy, it was a wonderful year. In addition to that experience at NASA, I had the opportunity to, to go to cabinet council meetings, to attend cabinet meetings, uh, and to, to be engaged with the White House proper. And then on the third component was travel. And we as White House fellows, there were 13 of us, got to travel around America and look at issues for the president. We got to travel overseas. I did an overseas trip that went to five different countries. And, uh, and then I was able to take some time off and go into China when we were just opening relationship with China. And uh, so it was a wonderful year for me. And then I had opportunities to work with subsequent presidents and then uh, had an opportunity to work uh, in the Obama White House. And so I've, I've, I'm a no party affiliation kind of guy because the things I've been doing have to do with national security and foreign policy. Right. And when right. you do national security, you're talking about defending America. You're not talking about defending a certain party or a certain part of the country. You're talking about defending America against all threats, foreign and domestic. And then when you're talking about foreign policy, you're talking about the face of America. You're talking about building bridges and 
and getting cooperation and solving the big problems that know no boundary, things like pollution and immigration and things that don't have boundaries associated with them, things having to do with uh, international economics and nuclear proliferation and terrorism, all those things that, that happen uh, that need a global solution to these world problems. And so it was very fun to be associated with all the different administrations and to do work on primarily national defense and foreign policy. So I've had um, Colonel uh, Lee Ellis on my podcast. Uh, I've had Colonel Don Taylor. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with those gentlemen or not. Uh, Colonel Ellis was a POW at the Hanover. POW, yeah. Yeah. I I know him, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, he talked a lot about how, you know, all of these same things uh, that we're talking about here help the POW survive uh, that experience and and actually excel through that experience. Then you've talked a little bit about having, you know, kind of experiences uh, with a couple of uprisings and dictators and, and the Cobar Tower incidents and, uh, you know, traveling around the world, is there an instance that you've ran into where these basic tenets of, you know, authenticity, uh, compassion, care, concern, uh, and catching your people doing things right, with all that you've experienced, is there an instance where that has not worked? Yeah, uh, there is. But before I go down that track, let me just tell you that in my experience working in a lot of international environments, and I've lived overseas for more than half my life, I have found that if you don't have the personal relationship, even if you have the best PowerPoint slides, even if you have a lot of money, even if you have all those things that we tend to put as a premium when we negotiate, nothing will happen. You've got to build the relationship with the people you're negotiating with And and it's just like in business. If you don't take the time to cultivate uh, the personal relationship, not only within your company, but outside your company, it's very difficult to get things to happen. And so I had been very successful, frankly. Uh, A lot of it is because of the people I've been associated with, but I had been very successful up until I became the ambassador. And, And when I was the ambassador, I sort of came in with the attitude that I had been directed to save lives and to fix uh, the embassy and and to make sure that we were safe and that Americans were safe. And I saw a lot of things that needed to be fixed. The bushes that we had planted in 2003 had gotten so big that you really couldn't see the entrance to the embassy from the guardhouse. I saw that they had added another parking lot that was in between where the guards stood with AK-47s and the, and the entrance to the embassy. And I looked at all these things and I said, boy, I think that there's a problem here. I lived through Cobar Towers and I'd been in a lot of dangerous places. And, and so as a, as a warrior, I looked at this and said, how are we going to defend this properly? And so I held a no-notice exercise, and you'll understand this as a, as a former Marine. That's sort of when you put out a scenario that people don't expect. And I called in, I put some people in to watch what was happening 
and to take notes. And then I called in at about 7.30 in the morning. I said, exercise, exercise, exercise. Terrorists are coming over the wall. And I gave a location, and then I gave some more information. And the Marine Guards did a super job. They clamped down the embassy, and they started doing everything they should have done. But then a lot of people had no clue. The big voice didn't work. The guards didn't know what to do. People didn't know how to take cover. Uh, it was really embarrassing to me that we were in one of the most dangerous places in the world. We had the highest rating for crime and terrorism. We were in the same rating as Lahore and Baghdad and other places around the world that were in combat zones. And grenades were going off. And it was a bad time in, in Kenya. And yet we were living in an attitude of complacency. So unfortunately, I wrote this stuff up and sent it up, and, and it made some of my people unhappy with me. And uh, <laughs> as a result, uh, I didn't have the backing of some of the key people, and, uh, and I sort of got crosswise with some people in Washington who were responsible for diplomatic security. And in fact, is this was about three months before Chris Stevens was was killed in in Tripoli, and I had written and said we need to do things different out here. We need to have reinforcements. We need to have radios. We need to have an alternate command post. We need to have all this stuff. And I got this note back and said, if you ever get in trouble, we'll send you these reinforcements. We'll send you this. And I wrote back and said, it's too late. Leaders have to get in front of it. And I don't need any help when I'm bleeding and dying. Well, three months later, Chris Stevens could have written the same note. And unfortunately, I was sort of targeted. <laughs> and and I, I, I admit right up front that I made a lot of mistakes. I went in like a general and not a diplomat to the embassy. I, you know, generals can pretty much make decisions with 60% of the information Whereas diplomats like to get 100%, and they like to have more meetings. And, and I didn't go through the process correctly. And, and I did uh, some style point errors, and I take full credit for that. But in the process, uh, I had the inspector general come out with, to take a look at this whole situation. And then even though they gave me 14 days to tell my side of the story, they fired me after two days actually it was three days and i lost my job it was a dream job i learned swahili before english i knew the people i knew africa i'd grown up there i was son of africa this was a great job for me and i also had been a humanitarian i'd been a diplomat i'd had other jobs i'd been the special envoy to sudan and i knew my way around the diplomatic circles, and I knew my way around the security issues and humanitarian issues. And here I was out of a job. And it hurt. I was angry. I was bitter. I couldn't understand how people could fight me when I was just raising legitimate security concerns. And it and I left and for almost three years I couldn't come to grips with forgiving these people. Mm. I would wake up, it would bother me all day that nobody was sorry. Three months after I was fired, the 
diplomatic security and the inspector general completed their report and I was totally exonerated. They wow. said all the claims against me were baseless, unsubstantiated. But it was too late. I had already been fired. Mm. And it hurt. And then I remembered back to Uganda when these people who had been hammered by Idi Amin were talking about forgiving and moving ahead and forgetting the past and looking to the future. And I realized that I had to do the same thing. St. Francis of Assisi talked about for, in pardoning, we are pardoned. The Lord's Prayer talks about forgiving. And I finally learned that I had to cut the anchor and let my ship move on. Mm. And, and I finally was able to forgive, even though nobody was asking me for forgiveness, I was able to forgive. And what I'm finding out, and you raise an important issue, is that a lot of people are going through that same frustration, that same anger, that same bitterness, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a business issue, whether it's a, a fight with a neighbor, and they got to move on. And you got to be better and not bitter because being bitter destroys your life and it destroys an organization. And you can't move forward if you got an unresolved bitterness, an unresolved dispute, a conflict that needs to be reconciled. And you got to do it. And I think one of the biggest things I've learned in my life is that bitterness, unresolved, issues will kill you physically and they'll kill your in your effectiveness and and what i'm doing today is going around and trying to help people understand how to resolve conflict how to reconcile how to change yourself even if you don't change other people and how to cut the anchor and how to get your boat to move on the anchor still stays there the problem still stays there, but you move. And sometimes you just have to do that. It was the hardest thing that I ever had to do in my life, but I'm deeply grateful that I finally understood what forgiveness is all about, what reconciliation means, and how to move on with life. And, and I tell you, there's a lot of people in America and around the world that need to do that because we're internalizing conflict, and it affects everything we do, even our health. And you've got to tackle those issues, and you can't keep suppressing them. You just can't do it. Well, no, that was that was a powerful share. Thank you for uh, thank you for that because it, it it rings for me on a couple different levels because and my reader, my readers, my listeners have heard me share this story before. But uh, you know, I went through the same thing when when I got out of the Marines. Uh, my career was cut short because uh, I was one of the uh, we, we laughed at the chosen few that had uh, uh, adverse reactions to the anthrax vaccine. And uh, I was bitter about that for a long time because I went in wanting to be a career Marine. Uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to do 20 plus and, you know, who knows, maybe go to school later and, and uh, become an officer of some type. And I had all these kind of grand plans because I grew up I grew up fairly poor in northeast Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make something out of myself. And when when I got uh, separated from the Marines, and that was just, you know, it was kind of a 10-day order. I went through med boards to come down, said you got 10 days to process them out. I went from being Marine, 10 days later, you're done. 
Mm. And, and I had a lot of animosity towards the Marine Corps. I mean, and the listeners who have served, and, and, and you'll appreciate this, like I was so angry, so bitter, I sold my dress blues. Uh, like I didn't want to see anything that had an Eagle Globe and Anchor on it for years. Yeah. And it took, uh, you know, one of the few people I stayed in contact with, he, he asked me one question. He goes, if that vaccine saved one Marine, was it worth it? And, you know, I looked back at my medical issues that I had. Thankfully, they were relatively mild. They were severe enough to keep me from service, but they didn't hinder my life. And, and I was like, you know what? Yeah, it was. Then what's your freaking problem, devil dog? And that was like a slap in the face. And so I had to let it go. And, you know, I got kind of back in. Uh, the brainwashing kicked in real quick. And now everything I own has got an EG, EGA on it. But but you're right. It was in and those like three or four years were, they were terrible. And, uh, you know, because I was so angry uh, that, that my life wasn't going where I thought it should be. So... So that story, I mean, the story you share really rings with me because of that. But, you know, and, and what you know helps me now is I'll, I'll always get asked, uh, if there was something you could do different in your life, would you? And, and without, a, without a, a, a hesitation, absolutely not. Everything yeah. I did, everything I went through, if any of that had been the slightest bit different, I wouldn't be standing here having this conversation with Ambassador Scott Gration right now. And well, I got to tell you, you know, good leaders figure out how to do the right things and then they get good style points and learn how to do the right things right. But a lot of them don't know how to handle when doing the right things right goes wrong. And a good leader has to do all three because you're no good to anybody else. If you're not healthy mentally and physically and and you're not don't have those relationships around you that support you and, and you can't have things nagging you down and pulling you down if you're going to lead properly the people that you've been entrusted with. So I think the reason I brought it up is that leaders sometimes have to take care of themselves before they can lead their organization. And sometimes it's resolving these conflicts with kids, your parents, your spouse, uh, all the rest of it, uh, because you've got to have yourself at 100% to lead an organization at 100%. Outstanding, outstanding. Well, sir, we're coming up on, uh, we're coming up on an hour here, um, and we've covered a lot of ground, uh, but, but you kind of got into a territory there towards the end where I think we're going to have to... Uh, I think we're we'll gonna have to have you come back on so we can really just focus on uh, the the conflict and and dealing with that piece because I think that is something that'll be extremely valuable for the listeners too. So, is that something you'd be open to? Listen, I'm always open to chatting with you. Yeah, you're doing a great service to our country and to leaders out there. And for me to be able to be in of assistance and to help would be an honor. Outstanding. Well, we'll make sure we get that taken care of, but. Uh, um, so yeah, as we look to kind of wrap things up here a little bit, and I, I really hate to, cause I think we were hitting our stride there, but we definitely got to do a second one of these. Um, is there anything other than the conflict stuff, uh, that we really didn't get a chance to touch on that you would like to, before we wrap up? 
You know, I could talk forever, so that's not a good question to ask a guy like me. But, yeah, there's always things to chat about. There's always experiences to share. Uh, and I enjoy just hearing some of the things that you were sharing because it's really a conversation. It's a discussion. Uh, it's not a lecture. It's not a sermon. And I learn a lot by just listening to people like you and being exposed to uh, podcasts like this. Well, sir, that that is uh, that is an honor. I really appreciate that. That and uh, so for the listeners, if they want to, you know, find out more about you, uh, your services, maybe have you come speak or whatever. How uh, how how can they get a hold of you? Well, I'm in the process of developing a new website, but if they want to contact me, they can send me an email at Gratian Book. That's G R A T I O N B O K at gmail.com and uh, I'll get back with them and then pretty soon I'm going to have a website up that will have a link uh, right now you can go to scottgration all one word dot com and you'll see uh, an overview of the book okay and I'll make sure that I get those uh, those pieces in the show notes so people should be able to just click on the link and get right to you and uh, when you get the new website up and running just let me know and I'll, I'll replace that link so it points to the uh, points to the new one. Um, Perfect. Sir, again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you spending it with us and, and uh, sharing everything with with the listeners. Uh, I, I know that they got a lot out of it, and uh, I, I, I really appreciate your time. It was my honor and my pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. And uh, so for the listeners, you know, if you enjoyed this, uh, feel free. Make sure you, you, you got... Uh, uh, Ambassador Gration's email there. You, mine is burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, hit me with any uh, suggestions, any questions you may have, any ideas for future guests, any just general feedback. Uh, make sure you're subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. And, uh, you know, really appreciate you guys tuning in and sticking with us. This is probably going to be the longest podcast episode we've done. And I think we just scratched the surface, uh, scratched the surface. So we'll definitely uh, have Scott back on. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Acid.